0: This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. What is going on, guys? We have a Q&A today. Today is heavy on the training side. I think we brought up training volume like eight times, but I think you're going to get a lot of really good insights from me on my philosophy inside of training volume, how to program that in, how to make sure that you're recovering from the volume and get the most out of your volume when you're in a fat loss phase, a maintenance phase, or a lean bulking phase. I also dive into some cool questions about phasing your diet throughout the process of fat loss, maintenance, so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot of really practical and good information in this podcast for you today. Grab a pad, grab a pen, get ready to take notes, implement this ASAP, and if you need any help, this is my shout out to you guys Hit me up, go over to Instagram at cody.boomboom. Head over to your email, cody at tailoredcoachingmethod.com. I love hearing from you guys. I love answering questions. I love getting feedback from the podcast. And this is an open invitation to hit me up and ask me any questions so I can help you out personally. Before we jump into the show, I do want to give a quick shout out to my people at Top Notch Nutrition. Head over to topnotchnutrition.com slash boom boom and make sure you enter the coupon code boom boom at checkout because sometimes you can actually save more than just adding that URL. There is a link in the show notes as well. These guys supply literally all of my supplements and one of the coolest things about them is that they're constantly innovating and making new formulas and I get to be behind the scenes and see the research, see the labeling, see everything that goes on behind the scenes to make these products so high quality. Um, So once again, head over to topnotchnutrition.com slash boom boom. And without any further ado, let's jump into the episode. Dude. What's up? I was actually literally sitting. I think I was sitting down. I think I was on a plane. I was like, I'm excited to get back and podcast. It's like literally one of the things I was excited about. I feel like it's been.
1: You podcasted there
0: though? Yeah, we did. I did one with Chase Tuning and then I did one with Jason in like his crew because he has like a couple people that are usually on the podcast but i was just like man like it's crazy because i remember wanting to travel so much and do and i love going to events and all that shit and and shannon said something on the way back she was like oh back to reality and i was like honestly i'm not mad about it yeah like reality is pretty fucking dope like i was excited to get back i had all these ideas for like we gotta do this for podcasting like filming videos, and, like, I feel like we talked about a bunch of things with videos, Mm -hmm. and then I left. (laughs) So I was like, fuck, I want to film, because we didn't get to do anything last week. Yeah. And it's crazy. It's crazy how much I miss this shit, creating content and all that stuff, you know? It's dope. I was excited to get back. Yeah. I I always say that to
1: my, like, friends or family. I'm like, there's a couple things. Like, I'm always freaking pumped for Monday. It's wild. I love it. I love getting back to the grind. And I just, like... I love going to work. Yeah. I love going to work. And I always say that to people. They're like, I understand, but that's a little much, man. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> no. I, I do. I love it.
0: It's, it's, I love learning more. It's a rare. It is. I don't think it's much. It's rare. And that's, that's the difference is like a lot of people don't get it because yeah. who, you're not excited to go to a job that you yeah. hate. You know what I mean? Or yeah. that you even like mediocrely. Exactly. Like.
1: Yeah. Some people are really good at and like it, but they're like not a jack to go. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah That's where the The fine line is. like hundred percent. Yeah.
0: I think about that at night. Sometimes I'm like, man, I'm ready to go to bed so I can wake up and start doing shit. For real. (laughs) Which is like so ass backwards to a lot of people.
1: And I know a few people that have like said they wanted to like start adventures or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it. Like uh, starting a company or starting this, starting this. and It's a whole different kind of fire. Yeah. You have to have or, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah. And I I just... I enjoy it talking to you about it because I think that you're – it's weird. Like you're in this position where, I mean, technically I own this business, but I still look at you as an entrepreneur. I know. You know what I mean? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Because you're determining your own – Destiny. Yeah, in sure. your own schedule, and your own work, and there's still possibilities to do yeah. other things outside of this in what you're doing and – you have to take a big risk to do what you do, which is, like, the most common trait inside of entrepreneurs is, yeah. like, that that hustle and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I love talking about it, man, because I think it's so – it's rare, but it's so – it's exciting, dude. Yeah. And it's cool to, like, hear you say that you're jacked for Monday because not that many people – Oh, I love it. Everybody's so excited for the weekend. Yeah. Which – the weekend's cool. Weekend's cool. Yeah, for sure. And you stay busy as fuck yeah. on the weekends. Yeah, but I enjoy my
1: week just as much as I enjoy my weekend. Yeah, 100%. In a different way.
0: But – yeah. Almost more. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for me this weekend too. Like as, because I know that whatever I do during that week
1: is going to make my weekend even better. Yeah. A hundred percent.
0: And it's like a, it's a new, every Monday is a new opportunity to do more shit oh or to God. do new shit yeah. or do better than you did last time, especially yeah. in like what we do. We do the same thing week after week after week. So every week we're like, how can we do it better? Yeah. How can the next video be better? How can yeah. the next podcast be better? How can the next for me, client result, everything be better. Um, so, like, this weekend at the Impact Collective, there was, like, a few things that, like, really stood out. And it was actually really cool because, like, especially day one. So, day two, my talk was all tactical. It was, like, what does your schedule look like? How is your time blocking? How are you outsourcing content? How are you scheduling content? What is, like, if you dissect your message inside a contact, how do you do that? So it was, like, very, like, applicable of, like, do this strategy. Day one was, like, our philosophy – why we do what we do what our, our mindset is so on and so forth and and then, and then how we do it exactly and yeah. that's why it like pieced together perfectly day one and two but everybody on day one like was way more focused on self-belief and basically not giving a shit what anybody else says like everybody went up there and was like you have to believe in yourself You have to ignore the doubt, ignore the comparison. You have to just keep working, keep hustling, and, like, believe that you can do it and have a purpose behind what you do. Like, have reason and have, like, excitement because if you don't love what you do, then – and there was, like, multiple people that went up there that were very successful that were, like, I've been in positions where I just fucking hated what I did. I I was making a ton of money, and I was, like, super unhappy. And it's, like – it was really cool because everybody – like, and the funny thing is, is, like – and this is transparent from behind the scenes, none of the speakers talked prior, so none of us knew what each other were gonna talk about. Which we probably should have like talked a little bit. But we all just went up there and had our talk and it was all like very in sync with if like all we of our other. messages. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was cool, man, because like one of the biggest takeaways for me was like mm-hmm. that and then connection. Like the the reason those events are powerful is because it's a bunch of like minded people together. But one of the messages, like every person that went up there was like when we go back home, we have a positive environment to do what we're doing. Yeah. And if your environment isn't supporting what you're doing, it's like that whole, that cheesy saying, like, you are the five people that you surround yourself with. Absolutely. But it's so fucking true. Yeah. So all this went up there and we're like if you're not like connecting with somebody every day, if you're not connecting with your employees, connecting with your clients, connecting with your friends, connecting with your family and like trying to build relationships, like you're shooting yourself in the foot. And then the other side of it was like having fun in what you do and loving what you do is the only way to continuously grind. Cuz otherwise it's work. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this isn't work. But I agree. It was it was a good weekend, man. That's awesome. A lot of big takeaways. Yep. For sure. Yep. Next one is June 18th. I will update everybody who listens to this. Austin, Texas. Never been to Texas. Dope. I've been at a layover in Houston. Dope. For an hour. <laughs> but I'm excited, man.
1: Austin, Texas.
0: <laughs> I hit up Vinny and was like, yo, like, my brother, because he just moved to El Paso. I was like, I'm going to Austin in June. I'll, I'll, I'll like, like, come six, a day early. And he's like, oh, you want to drive eight hours? And I yeah, was like. I was like, seven hours. Excuse me? Yeah. He's like, I was like, isn't it one state? And he's like, bro, Texas is big.
1: It's over 24 hours to drive across the state well over
0: that's insane yeah it, it's like such a weird shape that it doesn't like if you think of california that looks huge yeah but because it's like one big block yeah texas is massive yeah i was like oh well never mind man i won't see you yeah. <laughs> unless i take two flights that's the only way that
1: i i that's the only reason i when i lived in san antonio that i didn't go to dallas because it was over it was like five five hours 45 minutes to go that's to nuts. dallas yeah i went to austin a lot but austin How? san antonio are 45 minutes
0: oh yeah that's yeah. way better yeah I think that's. I think San Antonio is where Shannon's aunt lives, so they're gonna go visit her aunt while I go to Austin. Yeah, I think we'll see. Blakely touched the sand for the first time in San Diego. Sick. Yeah, she didn't like it at <laughs> that first. That is awesome. She did not. That's want funny, to, but that's really cool. She did not want to touch her feet in there. Yeah, but she's never been to like Ocean Shores. Oh uh, dude. Yeah, I, I mean, anywhere. I'm just trying to think. Like nowhere. No, not like like beach sand. Yeah, for not sure. At all. Yeah, I mean, she's gonna be two yeah. this weekend. So it's like still like it's crazy it's still brand new yeah but all right cool let's do um, it um another
1: Q&A we'll get right to it we got uh Bex Johnson how
0: do you know how much volume you need to do in order to maintain muscle so volume is uh, I have, uh, we'll link this in the show notes but there's the um renaissance periodization mike israel wrote the uh, volume landmarks and there's like a, a blog that like breaks down your volume landmarks and what this is is like the the numerical ranges that you need to be in in order to so there's there's uh maintenance volume some mv there is minimum effective volume which is like the the least amount of volume you need to do per muscle per week in order to see any type of stimulus or growth there is uh, maximum adaptive volume, which is basically where you want to stay most of the time. This is sure. where you get a lot of work, and it's a lot of productive work, but it's not too much. And then there's max recoverable volume, which is where you want to like tiptoe into every once in a while because you can only handle it for so long because it's so high, but you do want to have that super compensation, that stimulus, overreaching period sometimes. So first and foremost, read those landmarks because it gives you exact numbers, but Typical volume recommendations is anywhere between 10 to 20 sets per week per muscle group if we want to build muscle. Um, and that's not like you know 20 is going to necessarily build way more than 15. It, it's a long process. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where you keep some body parts towards, like, for example, like my lats can handle 25 sets per week. It's a big muscle group. I've done a lot of volume on my lats over time, and they can just handle more. Um my triceps cannot handle 25 sets. They will just de- get destroyed, partially because they're a secondary muscle. So they're working inside of all pressing movements as well. But they're also just a small muscle group, right? It's your arm. It's a tiny muscle yeah. on your arm. Um, so it really depends. Abs are the same way. I think like a, a volume uh, like three to six sets per week is like normal range because when you're doing a barbell squat or front squat or like those landmine push presses that you were doing, like all those things, or even the dumbbell, single arm press, all those require a ton of core because you're doing anti-rotation, stability, all these different things. So you don't need to hammer the abs as much as people think. Um, So it really, really depends on on what muscle group we're talking about. But usually everything is kind of in that range of 10 to 20. And I would say like secondary muscle groups, like your biceps, triceps, forearms, calves, and abs are like five to 10. Um, And basically whatever it takes For your maximum adaptive volume so the amount of volume you need to grow about 50 percent of that is maintenance volume gotcha so way less so that's what's cool about like like training realistically you can do half as much volume as you need to grow in order to maintain. So it makes it really easy to maintain muscle. The hard part is growing and Mm -hmm. getting muscle and building muscle. Um, But if you chase your physique and you achieve that, you can tone it down every once in a while and like take periods of times where you have lower volumes, you can still maintain all your muscle just fine. You're not gonna get bigger, but you can maintain that muscle. Um, And actually that's, that's another really smart way to enhance those periods of times where you do higher volumes because there's some research that shows if we go into a low volume phase, Where we're just trying to maintain muscle, that lower volume essentially like desensitizes your body to those higher volumes. So if you go from going 20 sets per muscle group per week all the way down to like eight, maybe six per week, and you're doing like strength, low rep, low volume stuff for a solid three to six weeks, and then you come back to the 15 to 20 sets per muscle group per week at like the eight to 20 rep range, you're really sensitive to those hypertrophy rep ranges, those higher rep ranges, the high volumes, Mm -hmm. and your body responds really well. Yeah. Um, which is why I'm like periodizing this, like 12 to 16 weeks of higher volumes followed by like a three to six week period of lower volumes and just rinse and repeat. Like it's a really good way to, to periodize this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't tell you exactly how many sets per muscle group per week you need in order to maintain, but just know that if 10 to 20 is, is typically your, your amount needed to grow, it's probably about half that for sure. And it's pretty easy to tell with like, just, just track your, if you're doing For example, like uh, the 100-pound dumbbells, like that's like a a benchmark for me. Like I know exactly how many reps I can get with those. It's not a ton. It's usually like I can get like eight, and then it's like six, and then like five. Like it depends on how many sets I'm doing. But if that rep count per three-set average is dropping significantly, Mm -hmm. I know I'm not maintaining as much muscle as I can. So trying to have some kind of gauge in that five to ten rep range of strength and then instead of like a one-rep max, Mm -hmm. and then gauging – how long you can sustain that? So if you can maintain your volume uh, or your reps on a three-set average of a dumbbell bench press, a squat, or something like that, in like the five to ten rep range, it's a good way of knowing you're maintaining muscle mass. Obviously, you can look in the mirror too. But, For sure. But yeah, but like, yeah, volume is is a is a tricky one. There's actually a really really good. Uh, I'm writing. I'm writing a blog right now called the Hypertrophy Guide, which just dives into a bunch of stuff, and it dives into volume. And one of the sources I use is uh, Weightology. Uh, James Krieger wrote the Volume Bible, is what he called it, and it's just like it's it's so big. I'm surprised that word is not like trademarked, I'm like you can use it anywhere. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, who would trademark it though? Jesus Christ Himself, the Catholic Church. Touche. I mean, yeah. yeah, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. But. But yeah, it's a it's a really good blog. Like, so I'll recommend nice. that if you want to get into like how much because like for example, um, ten to twenty sets per muscle group per week is is optimal for growth. But if you go over ten to twelve sets in a single session, you actually have diminishing results, Hmm. which because the – so there's like a balance between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So that ratio, that balance of protein um, equals growth if it's in the right favorable spot. But if breakdown overseeds synthesis, you're you're losing muscle. You're breaking down too much. So if we look at that, it's like, okay, well, I need 20 sets per week. I'm going to do 10 and 10 but maybe you can only handle eight per session, you're actually doing harm by doing more volume. Some people could do six sets of bench press and six sets of flies, and it won't take them that much time, but that's 12 sets in a single session just on your chest, and that's actually gonna be worse than doing eight sets. So a lot of times it's better to do, have more strategy with what movements you're doing and what rep ranges you're doing and how you're executing the movements and try to stay in that like, seven to nine sets per muscle group per session and still be in that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. And if you really need to advance, that's when you do something like uh, the program built for you that I have, which allows you to do a six day upper lower rotation because now we can hit the chest just six times in a session, which is plenty, but not nearly as much as it would cause like diminishing returns, but we're doing that three times a week. Yeah. So now we're hitting 18 to 21 sets per muscle group per week, which is the highest amount of volume you can do to grow. So you can hit that MRV without smashing yourself and having shitty results per session. That make sense? Yeah.
1: Is that, that uh, point, that space between synthesis and breakdown, is that really a fine line? Yeah. yeah. Cause I
0: mean, if you think about it, like studies say like, uh, once you go, they said, I, I want to say the research showed above 10, some research shows 12, uh sets per muscle group per session that's when you start seeing diminishing returns gotcha so they said eight was like the most optimal range but it it depends on the person you know for some people that might be nine some people might be ten was Was your first set of bench press like sixty percent of the the effort that you need in order to stimulate fatigue on the muscle then maybe that doesn't count you know so you can scratch that set and it doesn't count because some people do six warm-up sets before they start benching do all those count like So it's really hard. So it is a fine line. But that's why, like, I see people that do, like, an upper body day or a push day. And it's, like, it's like bench press, decline press, incline press. Then they do an incline, decline, and flat fly. And then they're doing some, like, extra push-ups. They're trying to hit the muscle from, like, every angle. You're just destroying the muscle and just smashing it. Like, you're doing way too much volume in a single session. Rather, like, do a full upper body day. Do some like a couple chest exercises, a couple shoulder exercises, a couple back exercises, you're done. Or on a push day, two chest, two shoulder, two tricep, done. Right. Now you can do six to eight sets per muscle group per week. You don't need to do a million exercises per session. Then you're just in there for hours. I mean, you see me, like I train six days a week, so I'm I'm lifting quite a bit. But even there was one day where you were like, damn, you're already done because I'm not doing twenty different exercises. Yeah. Now, even for your program, you have more exercises than me, especially on the last one because you were doing full body. So it's like, okay, let's let's hit a little bit, but let's yeah. hit a lot of different muscle groups because we're only in here three days a week. Yeah. Your upper your upper lower split now is four days a week. There's way less exercises per session, but per week. I thought the exact you have, opposite. You have more volume. I thought there was like because it went almost to F. So the reason for that, if you look at the full body, there was like. A1, A2, A3. Oh, yep, yep, yep. B1, yep. B2. So there's a lot of tri-sets and super-sets. Oh, but if yeah. you dissect how many actual yeah. exercises, there's way more. Touché. And there was like an EDT that's yeah. got four exercises yeah. in it. Um, but now you're doing a lot of single sets. So like Lord. just focus yeah. on this yeah. and just do this movement because it's more targeted towards building muscle now. And, and gotcha. you're kind of shifting gears into a new phase. Yeah. I really enjoy doing your, your program, man, because I get to watch you do it over the weeks. And you're consistent and you're in the facility. So it's really cool because – you know, as an online coach, there's certain clients where you know they're doing everything to a T. And it's so fun because it's like, I'm, I'm meticulously mapping out this program and I know you're following it. And then there's other clients who you cross your fingers and you're like, please just follow the script mm-hmm. and just do this and be patient. But having somebody in the facility doing the programming, and it's like, you're a blank, you came as like a blank canvas. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, I got to get back into it. I had this injury. It's like, how can we start to build up? And it's like chiseling away. It's really fucking cool. Yeah. I love that shit. Oh, yeah. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Next question. We got Joanna Fit Nutrition. She had two questions. Uh, question number one, I think she meant it said, does. Uh, do isolation work, workouts help you get stronger in compound lifts and or in CrossFit?
0: I would say yes. I think that. I think one of the biggest reasons, so compound lifting, of course. I mean, I think that's that's an obvious one. If you're doing a squat and you have an imbalance from right to left, you have to do like unilateral isolation work to the side or to both sides in order to bring up your lagging side, right? So if if you have an imbalance where your right glute fires a little bit easier than the left glute and you sit into one side of the hip, you got to do single leg isolation work to get that left glute firing better sure. and bring that imbalance up. Um, same thing applies with like, even just like balance and stability. If you have what's called valgus knee, um, I was, I was helping, uh, she doesn't have it, but uh, I was helping Josephine when she was squatting that one day with, I, I put a band around her knees and, cause mm-hmm. her knees were caving in. So valgus knee is when people chronically point their knees in while they're squatting. Uh, um, a lot of people just have underactive glutes. So if you just cue their feet out a little bit and just tell them to rip out, they'll, they'll do it and they don't have an issue. But that is another example like you have to work on isolation work. Just squatting more is not going to fix it. You have to do um, additional things to your squat or you have to technique. do variations of the squat or change your technique yeah. in order to improve that imbalance. Um, so I think for compound lifts, it's obvious. Or, or even um, another good example is like a bench press. If you're stuck on the lockout – like. Like I do, I lower, I'm totally fine. I get halfway up, I'm totally fine. And then I just hit this point where I'm like, oh shit, I can't lock out that final part of the deadlift or the bench press. It's most likely my triceps. That's why doing like board presses where you put boards on your chest and you're doing partial range of motion or uh, dips or tricep extensions to build your triceps. It helps you extend your elbow at the top and lock out that bench mm-hmm. press. But those are all isolation work right um same thing if if you're doing at if you're at the bottom it's going to be a different technique to increase the bottom range of motion um i've always done so much arm training that like the lockout is never my weak point on a bench press it's always the the bottom range of motion so i would have a different technique to to work on that but point being for compound lifts it's very obvious i think that like isolation and accessory work helps quite a bit that's why powerlifters do them they don't just squat bench deadlift all the time they do extensions curls rows Dips, all these kind of things. For CrossFit, I think there's a ton of accessory work inside of CrossFit because, I mean, you're doing gymnastic movements, you're doing walking lunges, you're doing cleans, you're doing chin ups, you're doing a bunch of things that aren't just the squat bench deadlift or push jerk and like those Olympic lifts. So I think the accessory part is right. I think isolation work. I think can come into handy depending on the CrossFitter um, and what their their goals are. If they need, if they want to improve aesthetically, obviously, because there's a lot of muscles that you just don't put enough volume towards inside of CrossFit because yeah. it's a performance-based sport. Um, which is why most people, if you're targeting CrossFit, you don't really need to try to look better. You just need to perform better. Yeah. Um, however, I think that if you look at CrossFit as a whole, like the one thing I can say is is there's just not enough horizontal pulling. A rowing inside of CrossFit besides like the rower, which you're using a lot of leg drive. It's more metabolic. If you look at it, there's no bent rows. There's no one arm dumbbell rows. There's no inverted rows. The only time people are doing inverted rows, is if they can't do a rope climb or a ring chin up, and then they'll regress it down for that individual. Mm. But if you look at CrossFit wads and CrossFit competitions, There's never – in fact, in Wadapalooza, they did a dumbbell bench press, which I was, like, shocked in. But it's very rarely in the horizontal pushing and pulling range. It's almost always you're pressing a kettlebell overhead. You're pushing a barbell overhead. You're pulling yourself overhead. You're rope climbing from overhead. You're doing cleans, so you're pulling the bar bar vertically. You're deadlifting vertically, squat vertically. So, like, your movement pattern is almost solely in the vertical plane inside of CrossFit. Um, So I've had a lot of CrossFitters that I've helped build muscle – more proportionally which has helped cure like just joint pain imbalances so on and so forth by just adding a ton of band pull parts face pulls uh inverted rows one arm dumbbell rows a little bit of bench pressing and stuff um and that just is like a game changer for them but i think that's it because inside of crossfit you don't need to do calf raises you don't need to do side delt raises or tricep extensions because those things are just going to fatigue the muscle and it's going to harm your performance and if performance is your goal you don't want to do those things yeah so I I would maybe add lunges in there too just cuz there's not that much unilateral work besides sometimes doing step ups and stuff but yeah but yeah.
1: So they got a second question too. Uh is it possible to get leaner at maintenance calories? If so, how?
0: Yes, sometimes. Um I think it depends on the person. Yeah. Uh the more new you are to this whole stuffer training <laughs> nutrition, it's tougher. It's definitely more tough, but if you're new to this stuff Absolutely. Usually, I, I usually start people at maintenance, almost, almost always. Honestly, because two, one of two things happens. Either a, they they're still new to the idea of like a very dialed in approach. Mm-hmm. So they may have tried different diets, may have been training, but they've never like locked into like a really sound, periodized, macronutrient based diet. So. I'm not going to start them at a deficit to try to lose weight, because I can probably get them there at maintenance just because we're cleaning things up and we're changing the portion sizes. For example, maintenance calories might be at 2,000 calories for easy math. And you come to me, you're at maintenance, but your protein is half of what it should be. Well, I'm gonna increase protein and I'm gonna drop carbs or fat and keep your calories the same. You're still at maintenance calories, but the distribution of those calories is completely different and you're gonna see way more fat loss. Um, so in that scenario, you can absolutely lose weight, uh, at maintenance. Um, another scenario would be if you're just brand new to training, I'm going to put you at maintenance and we're just going to train hard. Your energy expenditure goes up. You're building more muscle. Those things are going to lead to fat loss. You don't need to diet, right? You don't need to put yourself in a deficit. Um, another situation is if your biofeedback's horrible, somebody comes to me, they're sleeping shitty, their stress is bad, their digestion is bad. They're not getting any vegetables. I'm like, let's clean up the diet. Let's manage your stress, get some sleep, keep you at maintenance. Your body's going to function better. You're going to burn more calories on average. Your metabolism is going to be healthier. Your thyroid's going to be healthier. You're going to get more sleeps. Your stress levels are going to go down. You're just going to lose fat from those things, and you're not in a deficit, right? Um, So that's another big one. Another thing I would say is that a maintenance is like a floating number. So people say like, oh, my maintenance calories are 2,000. Well, they're probably like 1,900 to 2,100. Like it's probably this range if you ever take 100 calories because, you know, like every day – like I track my steps – And even if I, so I have a reminder that goes off three times a day, one in the morning, one in in the middle of the day, and then one at night, like to go on a 10 minute walk. And I'll just do a 10 minute walk. Even if I do those three, no matter what, my step count's different every day. Like usually by like a thousand. And it's just from me like pacing in here, doing random shit that affects how many calories I burn per day. That affects my metabolic rate. That affects essentially my maintenance calories, right? Um, how much, so the more you sleep. Typically, the more calories you burn, it's your energy expenditure increases when you have eight or nine hours versus six or seven hours. So if I sleep 30 minutes to an hour less one day versus the next day, that changes my maintenance calories. Yeah. Um, my, yesterday, I did back. Today, I'm doing legs. so I, I'm on a push-pull legs split right now. I just started this week. Um, and today's a leg day. I guarantee I'm gonna burn more calories on leg day because it's just more taxing it's bigger muscle groups it's harder for me to do it's more skill required therefore leg days my metabolism is going to require more my maintenance calories is going to be higher than on a on an upper body day yeah so i think like maintenance is a floating range and it's not a set number and therefore you probably can because i could put you at maintenance and some days that's actually a deficit because we have higher caloric expenditure on certain days than others um, so that's another reason why you can. But all in all, I think at the end of the day, the answer simply is yes. Um, it's not always as easy because when you're in deficit, we can see the number and say, you are definitely in a deficit, which is another reason why you gotta sometimes create a bigger deficit because if, fl- if maintenance is a floating range and I go, hey, we're gonna drop 200 calories for you, yeah. we drop 200 calories, you have less food coming in, you're not tracking your steps, but you end up moving a little bit less because you have less energy in your body, well, now you're like you basically your energy expenditure dropped with that caloric reduction. So you're still in that maintenance range, which is why tracking your steps is helpful, because if I drop your calories 200, I'm going to be like, hey, maintain your step count, because if you don't, your maintenance is going to lower with those calories that we just dropped. And then you're not really in a deficit, even for though sure. we think you are on paper. Yeah, um, but Yeah. I think that breaks down. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, you can. It's just more difficult yeah. and more more specific situation to situation for sure.
1: All right. Next question. Uh, we got from Robin Hemba. I'm 46-year-old, 5'8", 137 pounds, always been active, weight trained, five days a week, and counted macros since August of 2019. Lost 20 point Whoa, points. Lost 20 pounds at thir- uh, 1350 calories, 18% body fat. Started reverse on November 19th. Have been cre- so what is that, like August, uh, November, September, November, two months? But in the most recent uh, DEXA scan, I was the same weight, but 21% body fat with less muscle. Now, So now I'm stuck, not knowing if I should cut again or just change up weight training and ma- at maintenance calories. You so want... so, she's, so she's wondering what? So she lost 20 pounds at thir- 1,350 calories, 18% body fat. She started her reverse two months later in November. Have increased up to maintenance, but in the most recent scan... I was the same weight, but 21% body fat Ah, with less muscle. So she doesn't know if she should cut again or just change up weight training at maintenance calories. Got it.
0: Um, First and foremost, I think like we're going to have to link quite a few things in the show notes of this one. But um, reading, I wrote a blog on um, body fat scanners. The first thing you have to be aware of is like take that with a grain of salt. Like I see so many people do in-bodies Inbodies bodies I hate um, personally. Same with the yeah. handheld ones. Yeah. I can't remember what they're called. Um, it's like a bioelectric signal that it uses, or some shit like that. But even Dexas aren't. Like, you can you can falsify a Dexa. Like so, I could go into a Dexa. It could read my percentage. Like I can go and fasted do it. Then I could leave, eat like a cup of white rice, a little bit of salt, and some water, and I'd go back in, and my body fat would drop, and my muscle mass would increase. Why is that? Well, I just put water, sodium, and carbohydrate, pure starch into the muscle cell because I was depleted since I did it fasted. And there's been people that have done this that have gone in, shown a reading, gone an hour later, and then all of a sudden they've built muscle and dropped that in an hour. It's like, no, it's literally a a glycogen replenishment thing. So you have to take that with a grain of salt because if you go into a DEXA and you take your body fat and then you go through a cut or a reverse diet or whatever the situation was, six months later you do a DEXA scan again, hoping for better results and it's something different, you have to ask yourself, well, how many hours of sleep did I get the first time? What did I eat before I went and did the DEXA the first time? What did I eat the day before with the DEXA? What kind of workout did I do? Was the workout the night before like really taxing and depleting, or did was it a rest day? Like all these things play into like the variance. And if you look at, so I, I say the percentages, but the percentage of air, margin of air inside of every one of these body fat scanners is insane, dude. Like, Like to the point where you could read 13 or 16% body fat as a male, which is massively different. Yeah. That's like not seeing your abs at all and seeing your abs, right? Um, so it, it's a really, really wide, and that's even with DEXA, it's pretty wide, but like with other things like embodying stuff, it's even wider. Um, so I, I would take those things with a grain of salt because you're just gonna get fresh. That's why I really don't care for clients. I never ask them to get their body fat percentage tested. Um, there is a question in my questionnaire that says predicted body fat percentage because I wanna see about where they're at. Um, or if they've gotten it tested, it helps me like, but I know like there's a big range, right? Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing is it just gets you frustrated. I did a DEXA post surgery just because I want to see how much muscle tissue was actually gone off my left leg, but I didn't care about the Never. body fat scanners. In fact, it, it at that time it said I was 13.5%, which actually probably was relatively accurate because, um, I had put on a little bit of fat, lost a little bit of muscle. Um, but I did the in-body right before, so I went from the in-body to that. The in-body told me I was 23%. So 10% difference. 23% is obese. Yeah. I'm clearly not obese. Yeah. So like, go, and I literally, I did yeah. the in-body, I stepped out, because they had it in the same facility, took two steps, laid down at the DEXA, and they hit the machine. So there was no water, no bathroom, no nothing in between.
1: Like 10%. 10% difference. Damn.
0: Which is just nuts. It just shows like, okay, this is completely bullshit. Yeah. And the funny thing was, is like, They're like promoting this shit, and I'm like, so how do you explain this? Did you say that? Yeah, absolutely. Because they were like, oh, we would love you know for you to like write about this in your blog and like get us like it was like this. uh, I'm not gonna like (laughs) shout out the company, but it was like a company in Seattle that wanted to promote this stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, like I'll. They gave me a free thing. I was like, I'll come test it out. I'll do it. I've never done decks before. If it's great and I have good experience, I'll shout you guys out. Write about it. And then I dug more. This is a couple years ago. And then I did that, had that experience, dug into it more, found more research on it, and then wrote a blog about how s- bad <laughs> money bad scanners are instead. I didn't drop their name in the blog. But point being, like, I think that you got to take those things with a grain of salt, and that really shouldn't determine your path yeah. inside of this. Now, um, her actual question was – Should she do
1: a cut or – let's see here. Uh, now, now I'm stuck not
0: knowing if I should cut again or just change up weight training at maintenance calories. So um, it's hard for me to say without seeing your physique. So a lot of times these questions, in theory, I could say blank, but like, until I see your physique, I don't know, because you could show me the first exa, the second exa, and a picture of you then and now, and you might look leaner right now, or the same. And in that sense, I'm gonna say, hey, just change up training, stay at maintenance. There's no reason to cut again. Because if you're just basing the cut off of a percentage of body fat that a DEXA scan told you, I would say that's completely false. Yeah. So just look at your physique. Is your physique leaner or where you want it to be? Is it at a lean point where it's sustainable but it's leaner than average? Is it? Is it where you feel comfortable staying at? And if so, then I wouldn't go into a cut. I'd stay at maintenance and change training and just try to continue – progressing essentially but if you have gained body fat and you clearly can see that in the mirror and you're healthy and you're in a healthy Mm -hmm. position then go through a cut do like a mini cut or something you know like um i just think a lot of people are are quick to jump onto deficits and stuff because of things like body fat scanners which is why i picked this question because i wanted to like throw that context in there first um construe your opinion about it 100 percent. it just and that's that's the shitty thing about the scale too is like this is the hardest part about me gaining weight like i've talked about this multiple times is like you see the weight go up on the scale and you're like is that good is it bad like i know i'm supposed to gain weight right now but it's it's hard to like comprehend that yeah Yeah, even as even as a guy like the only time that's ever like and it's funny because i know guys who were like super skinny and if they don't see the scale going up they get that feeling like it's like the complete opposite yeah right um but it's just a number. It's fucked.
1: Good question, Joanna. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean Robin. That was <laughs> the last question. Both of them. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we got a couple more here. Uh, next one is from Lost and Lifting. This, this is a look. good
0: question. All right. You're My boy. No, you know it. Chaz yeah. or Chas? Yeah. We talked about this. Yeah. Uh, I don't know – DM me, man. Let me know how to pronounce it because there's one thing I hate more than anything. It's butchering people's name. It embarrasses me when I say somebody's name and I butcher it or like I introduce myself and I say their name incorrectly and it's like. Uh, Say what's up, lost and lifting. Lost and lifting. There you go. That's how I know. Hey, Cody,
1: I've got a quick one I think would help some of your listeners as well as reassure me. I'm doing the right thing with a current 40-year-old female client I'm working with. In the last 24 weeks, she has gone from 235 down to 205 with some definite recomp, added lean, t- uh, lean tissue. Well done. Progress has been steady with a four- to five-day refeed each month. Stress is at bay. S- sleep is quality. Energy is okay. Hunger is moderate. Hasn- uh, hunger has not increased too much yet to where it's unbearable but definitely increasing slowly. And strength is still increasing. Now the question – with biofeedback still positive would you push another 12 weeks in it of a defi- deficit or take an insurance policy to come back come back up around maintenance for a minute i don't want to risk running into her in the ground and wanted an opinion from someone i trust appreciate my feedback
0: i think like in this specific situation i'm going with taking the insurance policy mm-hmm. i think like there's two scenarios here there's there's the scenario where somebody has a lot of weight to lose like she does i mean she dropped 30 pounds already yeah um and you could potentially keep going and still see some progress for another two weeks, four weeks, maybe even six weeks. But then there's also the situation where that diet fatigue settles in a little bit faster because it's so individual, um, especially when somebody loses a lot of weight. Like it's going to take a hit on your body. It's a lot of stress, 30, 30 plus pounds. Yeah. So she could be the one that's like, Hey, you got another six weeks in her. So give her like four weeks before a diet break. Or she could be a, somebody that's like, has one week left and it's hard for people like, like general population, it's hard for them to understand the awareness of diet fatigue. Whereas if I'm working with a competitor, um, I, I've literally had, so like Brandon, uh, you know Brandon, he literally can tell me I start to feel the diet fatigue when my fat gets below 53 grams, like <laughs> like to the T. But that's like, that's awareness. Like, and, and I know my exact number too. like I can push the threshold of a deficit to a specific macronutrient number i know when my uh workouts start to get flat and less pumped if i I drop below a certain amount of carbs i know when i start to feel like less sex drive and hormonal function when i drop below a certain amount of fat it's because i've been tracking macros for fucking years that's wild that's awareness so if a coach is working with me i can tell them like dude like it's starting to get to me i got a couple weeks in me you know but but normal person be like "Uh, i had like low sleep yesterday but i'm good like i'm motivated i still want to lose this weight they just want to get after it and then the next week you don't hear from them the week after that, you don't hear from them again. And then they finally reach back out to you after falling off for two weeks and they binged, they fell off, they stopped tracking, they didn't go to the gym. Because one of the things that tanks with diet fatigue is mental motivation to mm-hmm. do anything. Yeah. So the gym and meal prep is the last thing they're going to do. So a lot of times in these situations, I always say like take a maintenance phase and just refresh you know, uh, I'd rather have somebody, even if she's like, I still want to lose 20 pounds. I'd be like, that's fine. We're going to take four to six weeks at maintenance, probably going to gain a couple pounds just in water um, from eating more carbohydrates, but I want to get you sleeping better, training better, see some PRs in the gym. I want you to be super motivated and I want your metabolism and your thyroid, your leptin growth and all these hunger hormones to be really on point. Once they are, we'll come back to the deficit and we'll be able to be more productive with it and more likely to sustain uh, fat loss in the process. In fact, there was actually just a study, um, published recently and reviewed in mass research review, um, actually by Eric Trexler, who's coaching me. Mm -hmm. And it was, it showed that individuals are more likely to regain body fat after a diet if they lose muscle mass in the process. And one thing we know is that the longer you diet or the more aggressive you diet, the more likely you are to lose body fat or I'm sorry, muscle mass or lean muscle tissue in the process, which is why when I do an aggressive diet with any client, we're taking way more frequent diet breaks, like every week, every other week, every three weeks, like pretty regularly, because you need to pull them out of that. But if you're dieting for, I mean, she, he said, what, 24 weeks? 20 uh, weeks? Yeah. It was like a long time, which makes sense. I mean, 30 pounds is a lot of weight. Uh, 12 weeks. 12 weeks. Okay, so not as long, but the point being is, as you're, di- you're dieting, oh no no no! In the last 24 weeks, she's gone down. To okay, there we five. go. Yeah, so 24 weeks is six months. It's a yeah. long time, um, and so during that time, what's going to happen is lean tissue is going to drop off. So that's I mean that's that's tissue on your muscle, it's tissue on your bone, it's ligament, it's water, it's it's carbohydrates, it's everything that's not fat tissue. Mm-hmm. The the more of that you lose in the process, which happens from long-term dieting and aggressive dieting and like less frequent diet breaks and maintenance phases, the more you lose of that, the more likely you are to re- regain body fat after the diet. And it's even more prevalent in men yeah. um, than women, which I would probably – I'd probably theorize that that's because women have more uh, essential fatty acids stored on their body than men. I mean breast tissue and stuff like that. Yeah. So they have more – essential fats on their body to sustain, period. Men don't, so when we all lose weight, we lose more body fat than they do, even if we both get to a relatively equal leanness because women still are gonna have that mandatory body fat on their body. Um, point being is like, if you if you don't take this diet phase, you're more likely to lose more lean tissue and that's gonna cause more regain. So one reason to go into a maintenance phase right now as an insurance policy is to make sure that when you are done with the diet, you don't regain any of that weight, which none of us want to do. Um, 20, 24 weeks is probably as far as I would ever push a diet, to be honest with you. Like there's there's contest prep individuals that will go 36 weeks, which is okay because they go slow, slow, that they maintain a lot of muscle mass, so they do really well on stage. But they also plan on gaining 20 pounds in the offseason. So like this weight regain thing isn't really an issue. They're like, yeah, I'm going to get shredded and then I'm going to purposely gain weight afterwards because – That's what this sport is. But for average individuals, it's like, let's keep it 24 weeks or less and then take more frequent maintenance phases so you can jump back in it. And if you take a maintenance phase now, it's probably not gonna have to be as long. So if you waited another six or eight weeks, your maintenance phase is probably gonna have to be twice as long because you're twice as fatigued. But if you take it now, you could probably get away with less time. So let's say four to six weeks at maintenance. Um, and then you can bounce back into a diet, lose the rest of the fat she wants to lose, and be more productive in that period of time of losing weight again, mm. and more likely to sustain it. Yeah. So most of the time, I, I recommend taking a, taking a uh, an insurance policy, just doing a maintenance phase. That's why we have like. And if you haven't listened to the podcast, a better way to approach your nutrition, listen to it because I talk about our phases of dieting and how we go through a priming phase to get you ready for a diet, a progressive phase to really get after it in the diet, and then a recovery phase in order to recover from the diet. And that recovery phase is this maintenance phase. So for some people, it goes prime, progress, recover, progress, recover, progress, recover, and then it's maintained. Because we have to shift in and out of progressing and recovering constantly to make sure that your body's healthy enough to continually lose and sustain fat loss. Yeah. So... Yeah. I'm for sure. It's a really good question. Yeah. I think it's very applicable to a lot of people.
1: Great answer. All right, we got uh just just Kim four eleven. When fighting volume for lower body, since most compound exercises work quads, hams, and glutes, should I count the sets performed for the compound exercise for each of them for each of these muscle groups or just main muscle group?
0: Basically, if you do a squat, you're hitting your glutes and your quads, a little bit of hamstrings. Yeah. Should you count that as glutes or quads? This is a debate, and if you look at a lot of literature, they will count that as both. So that's why like, people will be like, holy shit, 40 sets per muscle group per week in that one study they did. Well, yeah, but a, but a squat counted for glutes and hamstrings. So they're not doing 40 sets on quads and 40 sets on glutes. A lot of exercises are compound lifts that work everything. A deadlift works glutes, hamstrings, right? Um, a bench press works triceps, delts, and uh, chest, so chest, shoulders, triceps. So now when we look at that 40 sets per muscle group per week, it becomes a little bit more realistic. And I'm almost positive that study specifically did this, Um, but I know multiple studies have where they're doing super high volumes and people are like, that's insane. Mm -hmm. Like, how could you do that much volume? Well, it's because they're doing a lot of compound lifts that work multiple muscle groups and they're counting the secondaries just as they are the primaries. Mm -hmm. Um, What I typically do is err on the side of going like either, Counting it as a a standalone or a half point. So essentially, think about it like this: when I do a bench press, that is my chest. That's my prime mover in that movement. Therefore, I'm counting each set of bench press as one set per muscle group per week for my chest. Like that's one set of chest per in my weekly volume, right? For my triceps and my shoulders, it's a half point. So it's a half a set for my shoulders, my. anterior, so the front part of my shoulders, and then my triceps. Interesting. Um, when I do a pull-up or a chin-up, that is primarily my lats, That counts for one set per lat per week, but it counts as a half a set for my biceps, right? So now I know I have to do less sets per week for my biceps, but it also makes sure that I don't overreach and get like elbow pain and stuff because I'm trying to hit 15 sets for biceps to grow when I already hit five through pulling and chin-ups and supinated grip rows and stuff like that. So... You can do it that way. Um, The other way to do it is just to isolate them, which I think is personally easiest because if you look at my squat versus somebody else's squat, it's gonna be two different squats. And my squat might be super quad dominant and somebody else's might be super glute dominant because they have longer femurs. So if you're just counting a squat as a uh, quad movement it can be perfectly correct or perfectly incorrect depending on the person. So I think you have to individualize it to yourself, knowing where you have dominance in your your physique when you're when you're doing exercises because everybody's form is different. Yeah. But um, I like to do it as a a one and a point five uh, for secondary. So like primary muscle group counts as one, uh, secondary muscle group counts as a half a set. Um, or I just isolate everything and I just plan on doing a little bit less volume. That's why that ten to twenty marker is like a really good. Range because if I just count bench as chest and nothing else, I can keep everything at 10 sets per muscle group per week and grow really well. Yeah. But it's because I'm isolating the volume. But if I want to aim for like 20, it's probably more realistic that you're doing like one and then like half half sets. Does that make sense? For sure. I think that's the best way to go about it is, is primaries count as one set per muscle group per week. Secondaries, Secondaries count as half of a set per muscle group per week. Um, or you err on the side of less volume and just do one for everything.
1: Gotcha. Nice. All right. This one is from uh, Taylor Bilan. B-I-L-A-N. I "I was wondering if you could possibly talk about the quote-unquote newbie lifter period and why it's so easy to gain muscle during this period, how long this newbie period lasts, and any tips for newbie lifters to promote max muscle gain.
0: Yeah, um... There, I don't think there's any research on newbie gains. Like there's nothing I can say, well, research shows, blah, 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 because – There's not I, much. I mean – and I lie. There actually is a lot of research on newbie gains, but it's not about newbie gains. They show like this increases muscle hypertrophy and people are like, how do these people build this much muscle or change this much in eight weeks? And it's like, well, it's because they're sedentary individuals that have never been in the gym. So they bring them into the study because they're a clean slate and it's easy to – see significant differences after implementing something versus if you bring an advanced bodybuilder in and you try to implement a new strategy or method for a research study, you're going to see very minimal changes because this person's already jacked and they're already squeezed out most of their natural genetic potential. Um, And if you bring in an advanced bodybuilder and you tell them, hey, for 12 weeks, you're going to eat this way, train this way, they're going to be like, no, fuck you. Like, I'm in my routine. I'm in my plan. I'm not (laughs) doing what you say. Um, So they're hard to adhere to it. But in most cases it's it's simply it's it's a novelty of stimulus so a good way to think about this is um, if you are pretty like fair skin and you live in somewhere like seattle this i'm a great example of this if i luckily i was speaking the whole time in san diego so i was indoors but if i was just outside that whole time i would have got burnt to shit cuz it was sunny and i'm not used to that right that's a novelty stimulus i get burnt really quick but if i lived in san diego I don't get burnt from the sun. I'm yeah. just tan. Yeah. Right? It's the same thing with training. When somebody's brand new to that stimulus, it's novelty. It's new and it's going they're going to adapt quickly. So when you're new to training, your muscles are not used to going through full ranges of motion under load and tension. They're not used to loaded stretching. They're not used to peak contractions. And because of that, you build more muscle rapidly because your body is is basically forced to be, adapt quickly because something accumulate. new is happening. Yeah, it's, it's got to accumulate right away. Yeah. Um. So it's just a new stress on the body. So it like the easiest way to explain it is just that it's it's a novelty stimulus. Your body's not used to it. Has to adapt, and therefore it adapts quickly because it's not used to this. Um. And you're you're kind of like that fresh slate. Um. The other side of this would be, essentially, that like because she asked how long this lasts, yeah. right? So How long this lasts is typically one to two years, um, but it also depends on, on like how, how, how frequent, well, how, yeah, exactly how frequent and, and how intelligent really the training is. Because I know for me, my newbie gains lasted like three years, maybe even four, because the first year was very in, unintelligent training. The second year was more intelligent, but was like really geared towards just fat loss and high intensity shit. And then this third and fourth year, it was like purely intelligent programming for building muscle, and I gained a lot of muscle. And though that was in my third and fourth year of training. Um, same thing with like Theo, he built, literally he gained like 40 to 45 pounds in a year, dude. And you've seen him, he's ripped. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, it wasn't fat. And the reason for that is because he was doing dumb shit previously and then he came to Vigor and we started training him and doing smart shit and he just blew up. Um, so, And that was, I mean he had been training since high school so he had years under his belt. It just was really bad and infrequent and inconsistent training. So it really just depends, but if, you, if you're if you brand new to the gym, you step in the gym and it's like this, this is my first year of getting really serious, I think you're gonna be able to milk out a year of like insane progress, usually like it, you see it, especially if you're younger. Um, I'd say below 25, you grow quickly. You build muscle quickly. Your body changes very rapidly. And then year two, it's a little bit slower, um, but it's still more rapid than the average individual. And then year three to five, it's like like a normal pace. Like You're seeing changes weekly and monthly, but it's not insane. And then after year five, it's like snail pace. You got to like take progress pictures every three to four months to see if you're changing at all, Yeah, which is normal. but um, Which is funny because the better you get at this stuff, the more intelligent you get at this stuff, and the more committed you are to this stuff, the slower all your progress gets. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? I'm investing more and more, and it's like just squeezing out barely anything, which is frustrating. But that's attractive. Yeah, it's not attractive at all. But uh, but that's I mean that's reality. So um, but I mean part of that too is because by the time you get to that point, y- your physique's pretty gr- good already. You know what I mean? Um, you can only squeeze out so much naturally. Yeah. Not, you just gotta juice it up at that point. <laughs> which isn't something everybody wants to do. It's not good advice, Cody. (laughs) It's not my advice, people. Uh, Last question looks like we have here
1: is uh, from Moo Go. Mm. Hey, Cody. Recently started listening to your podcast. Really do uh, appreciate all you do. Uh, My question is how do you manage progressive overload slash muscle building while starting a diet? Since you're, since you're in a calorie deficit, the, en- the energy to lift
0: heavy or as much as you did at maintenance isn't there. So how do you build muscle while you're in a calorie deficit or focus on that, basically focus on um, progression? My, my question is how do you manage progressive overload muscle building mm. while starting a diet? So you don't – I think that's the biggest thing. Is like, unless you're, again, going back to the newbie. If you're a newbie and you go into a, a fat loss phase, you can probably still progress. And there's still some people that you'll see progressive overload but usually not at the same amounts of volume. So if I have somebody doing four sets of eight and they're in a deficit and the next week it's four sets of six, six, yeah. they're probably going to be able to progressively overload that because for six reps, they can do more weight than eight. It's a given. Um, but if they were to do four sets of eight six weeks in a row, I can't guarantee that they're going to continually add weight to that when they're in deficit because yeah. like she said, you are you have less energy coming in. Therefore, you have less energy to be able to put out and therefore your your performance is going to suffer. And that's just part of of dieting. Like, mm-hmm. so typically what I recommend is two things. Number one, if you were going into a deficit or a diet and your focus is fat loss, like let that be your main focus and do not focus on strength unless you're a power lifter. Like I have a, I have a two people right now that we are losing weight and progressing in the gym because they have a powerlifting meet. meat. They have to get stronger for this meat, but we're losing weight very slowly um, and we're managing volume and training very strategically so that they can, progress. But for most people, even like myself included, like who just are focused on aesthetics, building muscle, burning fat, when you go into a fat loss phase, just focus on fat loss and just focus on maintaining progressive uh, or maintaining your loads, not trying to progressively overload. Um, If you can add five pounds or squeeze out an extra rep and get some progressive overload during a deficit, great. You probably had great sleep, you had good fuel, like whatever it may be, you had a great day, but most of the time you're just trying to maintain what you can do. So if you go into a fat loss phase for 12 weeks, every week that you can maintain the weight on the bar, the total volume that you can hit in the gym without like really struggling from a recovery standpoint, that's a huge win because you're able to maintain higher loads and volumes while losing body fat, losing weight and dropping your calories in. And that's the key to maintaining muscle. And during a deficit, we're not trying to build muscle, we're trying to maintain muscle. While losing fat, so shift your focus and just prioritize. Like, okay, if I'm doing 200 pounds on the bar for four sets of eight, I just want to maintain that as long as I can in this depth set. Yeah, right. And then eight weeks in, it might be 185. That's fine. It's it's down, but you're still trying your best to maintain and the effort of maintaining. And as we said earlier, maintenance volume is a lot lower than than progressive volume. So if you can just maintain your volume while you're going through diet, you're gonna maintain all your muscle mass. And then the other side of this question is, do that and then make sure you implement phases into your diet, kind of like the lost and lifting um, Chaz's question where it's like you have a fat loss phase and you have a maintenance block. You have a fat loss phase and you have a maintenance block or you have a fat loss maintenance and then lean gaining or lean bulking phase. But in that maintenance and then that lean bulking phase, that's when you're really trying to progressive overload. You're really, really tracking. I mean, you saw me yesterday. I'd come to my laptop and type in, go back to the lift. I'm typing in my reps done, my weight lifted, and then my RIR, my yeah. reps in reserve. Like so, how, like I finished this set at 200 pounds for nine reps. I have about three reps in reserve, three reps in the tank. Like I'm tracking these numbers so I can make sure that I'm, I'm following the amount of volume I need. Right now I'm trying to grow, so it's yeah. different. But, but the same thing applies like in, inside of a maintenance phase, inside of a lean bulk phase. You're, that's when you're trying to progress and you're being very meticulous deficit phase just focus on maintaining i think if you do that you're going to be better off and you're not trying to because a lot of people get frustrated they're like fuck i'm losing strength i'm not hitting as much weight or reps in the gym anymore and it's like well you're in a deficit yeah what do you expect your body's fucking hungry yeah (laughs) that's what's gonna happen um but i think changing your perspective and shifting what your focus is during those phases is the key for sure before i let you go i just want to say thanks